Welcome in to another Emerging Cricket Podcast. On this week, we start our interview series with ESPN Crick Info's Peter Delapena. We've sat down with him and recorded for, well, almost four hours discussing American cricket, emerging cricket, and his personal story of how he got into cricket. Uh, if you're one of our patrons, you'll be getting an uh, extended version of these chats in the several parts, so make sure to check out our Patreon. Uh, if you're not a patron yet, you can become a patron for just $2 a month, uh, and you'll get some exclusive content which you otherwise would not get. Uh, for now, though, uh, make sure you stay safe, sit down, uh, grab a pair of headphones, and tune in to our first part of our chat with Peter Delapena. And here on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, we're delighted to be joined again by ESPN Crick Info's Peter Delapena. Peter, how's things in this troubling time? About as well as can be expected. I think uh, the last time I spoke to you guys, there was an ice cream truck driving by on the side of the road, and uh, the ice cream ice cream truck truck is still driving by daily. But I have to say, the the sound of the ice cream truck is is filling my head with paranoia now of, of all the thoughts that, um, you know, the, the ice cream truck driver could be a carrier. So my recommendation is do not do not go to the ice cream truck if you're stuck in your home and you're looking to get some fresh air. But, yeah, otherwise just trying to do everything to keep my head on and not go crazy and uh, keep occupied with whatever – you can to keep yourself busy in, in these kind of times. Well, I know I know your wife's a doctor, so I assume she's really busy at the moment. How's she coping? It's been a, a fascinating time, uh, for sure. Just uh, as a indication of the state of affairs, I mean, uh, she's been getting bombarded with text messages from the various um, medical medical links that she has for whether it's uh, extra shifts at affiliated practices that need help or other other practices that are in search of locum doctors and locum staff, uh, whether it's nurses, doctors, or other professionals, and they're being stretched very, very thin. And so they're, they're doing whatever they can to get the word out to try and get all hands on deck been an interesting time for us as a family before we go on any further i've made a little bit of a slip up uh i was under the impression that we were going to throw to this chat from our normal show so i haven't properly introduced everyone tonight so i should probably do that now first our favorite left arm orthodox spinner tim cutler tim how are you oh the magic the magic of television daniel if only people knew that you're introducing me halfway through our interview with uh, pdp but no I, i'm i'm great i'm um night two of 14 of self-isolation after returning into australia from overseas and uh over the weekend so hopefully by the time people have heard this i haven't gone crazy or crazier but um great wedding over in new zealand um return to um bit of craziness but uh, otherwise good to be here and good to be back speaking to you all live and to the fourth member of the panel tonight copernicus cricket on twitter nick skinner nick how are you i'm all right bez 
uh, just pressing the uh, volume button so I'm not muted anymore. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I'm very much missing the cricket, though. I've been dusting off the old cricket video games and, and trying to get some uh, some time in the middle that way. Well, I'm glad you bring it up because in my isolation, I've been able to create an entire emerging cricket squad with some of the best players in the emerging world on Cricket 19. So if you are playing that across any of the platforms, make sure to give that a go. Just search emerging in the community. Um, I'm not sure how much of Cricket 19 Cutler's played given that he harps on about all the cricket games of the mid-90s to early 2000s. Well, I've stayed at uh, Charlie Burke's house a number of times, him up on uh, the Sunshine Coast, and you know, between the hours of midnight and about 4 o'clock in the morning, we've played Ashes Cricket, so um, I'll have you young scallywags know that I'm, I'm very up to date with your cartridge-based computer entertainment products. <laughs> that is good to hear. <laughs> uh, do you want to give some of your quarantine tips, given that you are now in isolation? Well, both of us work in insurance and we're able to work from home and we're a lot better off than most with uh, with still an income coming in. So look, I've no tips from me. My tips are look after each other and um, listen to expert advice from those who are qualified to give it. But um, <laughs> my, my tips are be calm, uh, slow down and think about things because it's going to be a stressful time and uh, and we need to be in this together so that's going to be my only tips but uh, otherwise hopefully we can give people a little respite from the craziness that's going on there with a a bit of emerging cricket chat but uh, love and and heart goes out to everyone who's going through this because it's just uh, it's it's a horrible time to bring it back to you peter a lot of our activities will entail a lot of reading in the next few months and your book has been out quite a little while now I've got it in my hands. It's inside the select room, a quest for T20 cricket stardom. I managed to get started on it with the time uh, that I've now got and finishing a a backlog of books that I had to read beforehand. Uh, There's been some fascinating tales even early in the book. What's the reception been like and and how do you think people are enjoying it? Well, for the target audience, it's gone as well as I guess can be expected. Uh, People, I I wouldn't say it's... uh, a Gideon Haig masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, within the associate community, there's there's been uh, a good level of feedback that's um, been quite encouraging. That it's it's been well received. I and for a lot of the people who are the, the, the type who would be a binge watcher on Netflix or a, a binge uh, binge reader who in a situation like this where you've got an awful lot of time on your hands it's um, like I said been been quite well received and again for anybody who hasn't got a copy it's available on Amazon and um, it's all about mainly players in the associate world specifically in USA Canada and Bermuda and a little bit of Argentina in there too, and how their journeys have evolved in terms of trying to go from amateur to semi-professional to professional and what goes into that from both a coaching standpoint and how players are picked, but also um, just as important from the player's standpoint, getting an insight into the players' journeys and the hardships and the adversity and the obstacles that they have to go through. So hopefully in the very near future that should be available on Kindle as well. I don't have a Kindle version out yet, but I'm in the final stages of getting that sorted. So, Well, my copy arrived uh, just in time for the coming lockdown, so so that's good. I've been uh, rationing it out, so I haven't got too far through it so far, but um, enjoying it 
as as far as it's gone. Have you got to the bit where I'm outed swearing at a Hong Kong player for dropping a catch? <laughs> yes, poor old Giancarlo. Never played again. Uh, Giacomo. Oh, Giacomo. But yes, that would, uh, Giancarlo Stinger would be uh, would be Ben now. Uh, yes. Patron and uh, calendar contributor, but uh, we got a question from him later on. By the way, yeah, you you Italian names, it all sounds the same, right, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> Good old Giacomo. First is his first and last appearance for Hong Kong. It was it was uh, yeah a memorable one for some of us. Well, especially when I uh, wrote the quote for Charlie Burke in the press release about his inclusion in the in the touring squad as being one of the best fielders he'd seen. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I know. That's now. Now that's ironic. There's talk of the commentator's curse, and yeah, that's up there. Albeit not a commentator, but still. The segue I'd like to bring in to this is to start talking about cricket that has happened, but unfortunately there hasn't been any cricket to report on or keep up with. But a timeless story that we do have on cricket, at least on the American front, is the affairs of the several governing bodies of cricket and the way that American cricket is run. We've seen another changing of the hands with Richard Doan now in. There's talk of minor leagues and other leagues like that, and you always have had your finger on the pulse. What's the latest on that, and what's your assessment of things at the moment over there? Well, the coronavirus has had a definite impact on a lot of these initiatives that they've been planning, and if you think about USA Cricket and the amount of overseas resources that they they get, both from a player standpoint and uh, an administrative standpoint, you bring up Richard Doan. Richard Doan, as far as I know, is still in Australia. And he was hired to be the the new, I guess, high performance director. Don't know, I can't remember what the specific official title is, but that's is essentially what his his role is for USA Cricket. Um, but last time I talked to him, he was still in Australia sorting out proper visa to come in and and get for work purposes, and that was right at the start of the coronavirus outbreak and with flights being basically halted uh to anywhere in the world across the pacific and across the atlantic uh from the u.s uh, as far as i know richard richard is still in australia and you've got the players themselves you know somebody like cameron stevenson ian holland those guys are in australia and or england respectively uh, depending on on when Ian Holland was getting ready to resume his county cricket uh, preseason training, you've got a guy like Aaron Jones is is in Barbados, Kareem Agora in Antigua, and I know some of the U.S. players who are of the guys who who migrated from India. Some of those guys had gone back and forth to India for training purposes, and there's just a, a lot of um, spread in terms of. Yeah, both playing and administrative resources uh, that U- USA is a unique situation where, yeah, not everybody is, is in the U.S. at the moment. And that that's making it quite challenging, even more so, you know, traditionally the thing that get, keeps get, getting brought up about the U.S. and makes it tough for them to train together and, and tough for them to get their resources and manpower uh, centralizes the fact that everybody keeps bringing up all oh, USA is such a big country. You've got people in New York and Florida and Texas and Illinois and California and everybody's spread out. And how do you get them all in one place? Well, in the modern state of affairs, people have been following US cricket for the last year and a half, two years or so. That's spread even further uh, beyond the the national borders. Uh, traditionally, again, you've you've had guys like Adam Walsh Jr. when he was with the team. So it's it's 
presented an unprecedented situation from that standpoint. Uh, dotting the I's and crossing all the T's for, for trying to make the recruitment of uh, Jagadish Sharun Kumar as their new head coach. He had come in from India for a camp to oversee a camp and make observations while they're, they're still trying to for, uh, get all the paperwork in order so that he could become uh, head coach officially and now that obviously is is hitting a, a snag because of the coronavirus so there's so many implications the plans that they've had set up to go forward through this summer and that starts with again the postponement of the the ODI tri series that was supposed to be in Florida at the start of April but then beyond that the start of the minor league T20 competition and other tours that they had planned they were supposed to go to the Netherlands in June and it's still a bit further out, distant beyond that, but going to Namibia in September and all sorts of things um, have now been thrown out of whack. The last time we heard from you was not long after the announcement of the minor league system, and there wasn't a load of information at that point. But fast forward to now, and yes, things have been impeded by recent events, but let's say in an ideal world or maybe down the track, a couple of people have checked in on Patreon with a similar uh, with similar questions, Rohit S and, and PJ Hoodles, who gets a shout-out in your book as well, they're wondering how this minor league would work. Would it be a feeder team for the national team? And more broadly, what is the structure within cities and states to host teams and the tournament itself? Because a country as broad geographically as the USA, it'd be difficult just to get people around. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I'll take it, try and take it uh, one by one. I guess that the first thing is the venues and, and the cities were announced and that provided a little bit more clarity in terms of the structure. So I think one of the things that I know amongst ourselves and some other people in the associate world were kind of skeptical about was, were they trying to organize a quote, quote, 22 team franchise competition like the Global T20 or some other leagues where it's uh, a nationwide tournament, but every single match is played in one venue and, and there's the quote-unquote Vancouver Knights and the quote-unquote Edmonton Royals and the Winnipeg quote-unquote Hawks. And yeah, when in reality, you, you could have just called them Team 1, Team 2, Team 3, Team 4, Team 5, or, you know, Team Blue, Team Green, Team Team Yellow, Team Purple, whatever. Neon Blue Smurfs? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, a positive thing was that they had committed to having matches in cities or as close as possible to the the designated zone where they had announced where uh, teams would be based. Um, so, for example, in the Western region, uh, they had teams in Seattle. They had teams in, in San Francisco. They, they had a team that was in supposed to be a Sacramento team, but they would be playing the games in San Francisco, which is more or less an hour, hour and a half away. Uh, Los Angeles team, an Orange County team, which again, if, if you think of it in comparative terms, it's akin to having your LA Dodgers and, and the Anaheim Angels. You know, So those teams would be both playing out of Woodley, in which is in the Van Nuys suburb northwest of downtown Los Angeles. Um, if you go around other parts of the country, there was going to be a, a St. Louis team, a, a Chicago team, a Dallas team, a Houston team. You would have in Florida, you would have a South Florida team. There was supposed to be, I believe, a Central Florida team, but again, they'd be playing in, in the Turf Wicked venue in South Florida, uh, which would be, at the moment, it was listed as Brian Piccolo Park, which is the kind of uh, lesser venue compared to 30 minutes away. You've got the Central Broward Regional Park, the 10,000-seat facility. Um, and then you, you had uh, teams that were designated in 
New Jersey, in New York, Boston. So it was, there was quite a, a widespread, uh, as opposed to just saying, and, and also North Carolina. You've got the great facility in North Carolina, in Raleigh, in Morrisville, Church Street Park. So it was quite a, a widespread there. So there was a positive element in terms of the spread and, and the breadth of the competition, but it also presents challenges. At the top of that list, quite clearly, not every single game that is forecast or what had been planned and scheduled would be played on turf wickets. And that is something that caused some concern and some worry for some people. Because traditionally, when you mention would this be a feeder for, for players to get into the national team, U.S. players have consistently struggled to adapt from artificial wickets to playing on turf wickets when they're playing overseas on tours, and that's the international standard. So at a, at a basic uh, level and a basic premise, realistically, how is it going to benefit the development of players who would be playing in this competition if at least half the matches, if not more than half the matches, would be played on artificial turf? And if you're supposed to be using this as part of a, a town of identification system akin to a Sheffield Shield or a county cricket system where this is supposed to be the domestic structure that again, feeds up to, to the national team. Well, realistically, the players who are performing and scoring runs on, on the turf wickets are, are going to be graded in a much different manner and evaluated in a, in a much different manner than the, the franchises who are based on artificial wickets. The most promising part, in my eyes, was the fact that they had announced that the final would be taking place in, in Raleigh. I feel that that North Carolina venue is much better as a total package than the venue in Lauderhill. Lauderhill is a fantastic facility in terms of the fact that you've got a pavilion, you've got the stadium seating, you've got a full-time dedicated groundsman, you've got, you know, it might sound funny to say it, but they've got a super sopper there. Again, that's not something you can take for granted necessarily in, in a lot of places around the country and even in some parts of the world. They have that there, uh, which helped to rectify some of the issues they've had in the past with rain delays, um, it's not nearly as much of an issue now in Florida as it was in the past, but the community support just isn't there. You don't have the volunteer support. You don't have the fan support in Florida. And a lot of those elements are there in North Carolina. And the fact that I think they assigned the, the finals, the semifinals and the finals to North Carolina for Labor Day weekend in September, I think is fantastic because I, I do genuinely think that, uh, regardless of who makes it to the final, whether or not that North Carolina team franchise team is involved in the final, you will get, uh, um, if there's good momentum built up into that final and, and um, it gets it gets a, a healthy following uh, both in and outside North Carolina where you will get um, a good spectacle for that final weekend if and when it does take place in, in the context of current affairs. You're just mentioning that uh, North Carolina ground in, in Raleigh and I know uh, a year or so ago, maybe a bit more, the, the US administration were really pushing Raleigh as a site for home games and they got very good crowd in for the the matches in the sub-regionals. Um, I remember watching the stream on YouTube with the you know, the cheering crowds in that exciting game against Canada and they, it seems to have been sort of put on the back burner recently, which I don't understand because they had, as you said, good, good momentum with the probably the only place in America where there's solid local support for the American team. Um, do you have any, you know, insights into why they've moved away from Raleigh as a, as a venue? Because I, I thought it was a really good initiative. There's a couple of different ways to look at it. I mean, I'm, uh, you can listen to what the administrators have had to say and take it at face value, or you can read a little bit deeper t between the lines. I'm of the opinion that um, I think the expectations are are not exactly 
realistic or I, th- I think they're they're misplaced. And, and what I mean by that is if you go back to April and May, when USA first got ODI status in April, May 2019, um, in Namibia, they had announced, the ICC had announced uh, immediately afterwards that Church Street Park in, in North Carolina would be hosting USA's first round of ODIs in September against Namibia and Papua New Guinea. Now, that proclamation was made without any asterisk to say pending final inspection and final upgrades that are necessary to get the ground up to ODI standard. They just made a very uh, definitive declaration, Church Street Park is going to be the host venue. Now, at that point in time, yes, Church Street Park had not officially been declared an ODI status venue, but if the ICC is saying this ground is going to host the matches, that to me is an indication that they are moments away from putting the seal of approval, rubber stamming it to say it's an ODI status venue. And to me, I don't, um, I'm struggling to, to process what would be so dramatically different that it would be uh, certified and eligible to host a T20, uh, an ICC T20 tournament. Um, but then it would uh, not meet, ODI standards, I, I, I can't reconcile the two, um, how you could have a, a T20 or a T20 international, but then say, no, it's not ODI certified. That doesn't make any sense to me because an international standard match under ICC playing conditions, talking with ICC, uh, excuse me, talking with USA cricket administrators uh, since then, they've claimed that um, there were certain upgrades infrastructure-wise that needed to be done to at least have some sort of permanent or semi-permanent structure in place to accommodate PMOA guidelines and anti-corruption guidelines and all those kinds of things. Okay, fine. But the standard that I think they're, when I say I think they're being unrealistic is USA officials, uh, by and large, whether that's current officials or past officials, they've always tried to measure up what would be acceptable. They've used Lauderhill as the measuring stick for that. Well, Lauderhill is a, a you know a five thousand seat permanent seat expandable to beyond ten thousand seat venue with a, a two story pavilion and you know it, it's it's a full fledged stadium it's a bigger and better facility than even some facilities in the full member world especially in the West Indies or other countries and I think if you're using that as the measuring stick to to deem what is acceptable and certifiable for ODI standard, I think that's completely unrealistic. Because if you look around the associate world, and I'm sure you guys have seen it in various, <coughs> me, various venues, whether it was in Namibia, if you can play an ODI and, and stamp an o- ODI at that WAP venue, you know, Wanderers, Affies Park and, and Wanderers, um, and well, if, if that was deemed to be acceptable to be an ODI venue, well then uh, why is it North Carolina? If uh, King City... In Canada, which is about as bare bones as you can get for an associate facility. <laughs> uh, Don't talk to Bertus de Jong about that place. Yeah, our good friend Bertus de Jong has plenty of opinions about King City. And, and hey, that was deemed acceptable for ODIs, and I, there's literally nothing there. Now, if that's acceptable to get a rubber stamp for uh, an ODI, I don't... Uh, I can't... I cannot compute. I cannot compute. I cannot comprehend why... <laughs> Uh, North Carolina, which operated under similar uh, uh, functionality when they had the T20 uh, qualifier there, they basically used tents uh, and portable uh, mechanisms for the players and match officials. 
why would it be acceptable then and why is it acceptable at the BRA? Why is it acceptable in Canada? And you're saying, well, now we can't have ODIs there uh, because ODIs are, are a different beast. And and the excuse, again, that U, uh, U.S. administrative officials have fallen back on over the years is, well, look at Lauderhill and everything needs to meet the standard of Lauderhill. It's very, very, very um, – if, if you're using Lauderhill as the standard, you're never, ever, ever – going to be able to certify another ground in the USA as, as an ODI standard ground because nobody, whether as a private investor or as a pub, public municipal uh, city investor, is going to give the approval to put $70 million into a 5,000 to 10,000 seat facility that gets used literally four times a year for cricket and generates no revenue whatsoever. You need to have a modified venue or modifications that yeah, a venue can be expanded or there can be temporary capacity put in you know, for a big event, but without committing the millions and millions of dollars that are, that would just not be financially sound uh, if it, unless you want to burn a hole in your pocket. Um, and, and I think that's my – that's the complication that is currently there that needs to be, I guess, hurdled for North Carolina, the venue at Church Street Park. Um, and I, I just think – from my perspective, they, the complications are imagined uh, more than 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 their being there in actuality. So the facilities or lack thereof, one challenge and the costs associated with that. One thing that hasn't really been spoken about too much are the potential salaries for the players, I guess, and the coaching staff involved with the minor league. Do you have any information about that? That's another uh, PJ Rudels question to come through one of our well loved patrons he, he likes telling us he wants to get the value out of his two bucks and he's got two questions so uh, he should be happy <laughs> pj is a good man uh pj yeah uh in terms of that question I, I would say a lot of that is still up in the air especially now if if um the potential investors or you know the investors who are backing it uh, in terms of ace being the 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 runners of the league itself, they were they were hoping to solicit in, investors for more f- genuine owners to come on board and, and take on the operational costs for various franchises. But again, this is something that's now going to be up in the air going forward uh, in terms of the amount of investment they're going to be able to generate. But that's that's a that's a big gray area. In terms of the players' salaries, the structure itself, I've asked this multiple times, and the answers I get are very vague, um, which leads me to believe I don't even think they know themselves what the salary structure is going to be at the moment for for the minor league because there's a couple different categories they were going to place players in. One was they were going to have, I think, two or three professionals for every team, or you know, professional, semi-professional, and that could mean anything it could mean usa national team players who they deem are, are now professional and if, if those players are, are already on a usa cricket slash ace central contract well does playing playing for the minor league is, is that part of their contract you know i um i can't imagine that there's so much excess funding that they would be paid they would be double dipping essentially um akin to what you would uh be seeing for the hundred where guys who are on county contracts are also getting a separate uh, hundred contracts. I, I just don't, I, I can't see how there's funding to say if there's a, a USA player who's on an $80,000 contract, 
for USA Cricket slash Ace, I don't see how you would then pay him an extra $80,000 to play in the minor league. That, that just doesn't seem plausible. But I also know that they were envisioning getting um, players from overseas to either come as overseas players and, and just shuttle in and shuttle out during the, the American summer, or if they envisioned those players to come in and move permanently and, and fulfill a, a greater role above and beyond the minor league itself, meaning they would play in the minor league, but then they would also stay in the U.S. year-round and do coaching, do development work, and contribute on a wider scale to the overall community and infrastructure. Then you would have amateur players, you know, who would, who uh, again, it was kind of the information was that they would be getting paid on a stipend basis, a per match basis. Um, and that is your top level league players, your, your best, you know, scores and wicket takers in league cricket who would be pushing to kind of get on the, the fringes and get on the radar of the USA national team. Uh, there's lots of those players out there. But again, um, the indication was that these guys would still need to handle full-time jobs. If you looked at the schedule for the minor league, all the matches were set to be played on weekends. So um, the entire slate was Saturday and Sunday matches. There's no weekday matches. So a lot of these guys are going to have to juggle their full-time day-to-day work with squeezing in a training session maybe two or three nights a week after getting out of work and then hopefully be in a situation where they could be available to play on on the weekends as well. And then there was also another category along similar lines for under-19 players uh, designating a few spots for under-19, USA under-19 players or or people on the under-19 pathway for junior cricket development to, to be part of these franchise structures so that they're being able to to rub shoulders with and, and get lessons from uh, the other players, in particular these quote-unquote professional or semi-professional players. Now, one thing that hasn't really been spoken about that I think, uh, at least publicly, wi- widely um, publicly spoken about, that has come up in conversations I've had with many, many players since some of this information was um, put out and other information that's kind of trickled down in the player circles locally that is of great concern is... The nature of the the professional or semi-professional players that are being recruited from overseas, and in a lot of discussions uh, that I've had, the concern from the U.S. eligible players and and the domestically developed players is that the overseas players that are going to be recruited, especially the ones that there the intention is that they stay and live in the U.S. year-round, the vision that they see happening, both the players who have been recruited and the ones who are kind of domestically developed, is that a lot of these players, once they hit the three-year uh, uh, residency threshold, they're just going to get fast-tracked straight into the U.S. team. And so you, you're, you're going to potentially run into a situation where you have a lot of players from the West Indies who are who are who have been asking about um, moving to the U.S. or coming to the U.S. to be part of this league, possibly players who are on their last legs in first-class cricket or fringe players in first-class cricket who haven't necessarily been able to to nail down a permanent spot uh, within their first-class structures and and be on the pathway to pursue genuine ambitions of breaking into their their current national teams who see this minor league opportunity as as a vehicle to a... It's an opportunity for me to get paid. I'm not really um, stable in my current system. I'll go to the U.S. I'll be considered a 
good enough to be a semi-professional professional player there, get paid for it, and once I hit the three-year mark, I can go play for USA, uh, which has been a vehicle that, you know, not exactly the same intent, but you look at somebody like Xavier Marshall, came to, to the USA because his opportunities dried up in Jamaica, was working construction in New York, but once he qualified, he started playing for USA. Uh, that's the kind of player who is is eyeing now an opportunity to come to this minor league. And the concern from local players is the cycle is just going to continue to perpetuate itself. And it's just going to discourage the locally developed players um, more and more. And instead of giving you know giving them more hope and giving them more opportunities to, to want a professional career and go on and represent USA, they're going to be less um, incentivized. And they're just going to say, forget it. I'll go play basketball. I'll go, go play tennis. I'll go pursue a non-cricket professional career in finance or whatever other fields, and you're just going to have the cycle continue. And I think that's that's one of the, the big question marks um, that's going to need to be answered as as um, the more details come out about this, this T20 minor league and the major league to follow. Yeah, the, the issue of youth drop-off and, um, you know, young players coming through at the under-19s level and then not being picked again. Um, you know, I've, I've seen this a fair bit in Canada as well, but especially in the US, the pathways are pretty questionable. And, and you know, when you are, I guess, picking guys sort of over the top who, who have experience in, in full member nations, it doesn't help the, the youth pathway. What is the, I guess, structure like for young guys coming through? And, and why do you think the, the US national team is often sort of hesitant to, to give them another chance when they're often very willing to give a chance to, you know, washed up ex-full member players. Well, this came up in a recent discussion I had with Ian Higgins, the USA Cricket CEO, and his position, and it's understandable, is that USA should be picking the best uh, possible 11 at all times. And as long as the ICC eligibility rules are written a certain way, USA or any other country for that matter is going to look a bit foolish if they're taking a principled, you know, moral stance of, we'll only pick homegrown players, we'll only pick players who are born in the USA or brought up in the USA, or we're only going to be picking U.S. citizens, and even if you're qualified on three-year residency, we're going to pick citizens only, or, because if you take that stance, and other countries, whether it's Oman, UAE, who have challenges in terms of the citizenship rules over and above, you know, other countries uh, compared to, say, the Netherlands or Scotland or USA for that matter. I mean, uh, you know, a good example, Ahmed Raza, born and raised in Sharjah and um, developed through the UAE under-19 system. As far as I know, he's not a UAE citizen despite having been there his entire life because you have to be of Emirati blood to be a UAE citizen, and he's not. Um and so you can't, uh, you know, there's reasons why the ICC has a, a certain um, guidelines written in for, for residency eligible players who are not citizens or passport holders. And I get that, you know, so, so in that sense, uh, if, you know, again, if, you, if USA administrators decide to take this principled stance, you're going to um, put yourself at risk of falling back, losing ODI status, losing funding. Losing fixture opportunities, if you say we're only going to pick, uh, we're going to set a different threshold than the ICC threshold, 
and it means the the performance of the team drops off to the point where you're you're being affected financially and from a fixture standpoint i understand why you would take a stance of we're going to pick our best 11 and it doesn't matter who the players are where they're from or where they're born or where they develop their cricket we want to put the best team on the field at all times i i can um fully understand that however you cannot say that okay if out of the other side of the mouth your mouth you're also saying we want cricket to be a mainstream sport we want cricket to be just as popular as basketball and the nfl and ice hockey and and soccer and we want it to be a sport that local children can aspire to and we want a homegrown national team one day and we want players to be seen as heroes and role models and and we want, you know, 100 Steven Taylors instead of just one Steven Taylor in the national team. And if they truly want cricket to be a mainstream sport and not something that's forever on the periphery or in the background or in, in, you know, an underground subculture, at some point there probably will need to be an administrative mandate to draw a line and say, you know what, we have to take a stance and not just pick the quote-unquote best eligible players, whoever fits under the, the residency uh, qualifications. We have to start picking. We have to actively make a decision. You know what? If we've got two players who all things considered are, are fairly equal, and if one of them is a 30-year-old who played five matches for the West Indies, but those five matches came eight years ago, and he's been kind of floundering, but he developed under a certain standard and hey he played for the west indies or he played for you know ipl or, or whatever in india and player b is a, a player who is ostensibly using the eye test he's got a similar skill set he hits the ball the same way he bowls the you know he he bowls 80 miles an hour this guy who played for the west indies bowled 80, 80 bowls 80 miles an hour too they both swing the ball whatever and the 20-year-old from USA has never been exposed to first-class cricket, but he's homegrown. And, and at the moment, the the almost default selectorial decision is to side with uh, to the guy who played for the West Indies because there's kind of this, this psychological block that says, oh, well, he played for the West Indies, so he must be good. And and it's there's like yeah this this inferiority complex. Well, this USA guy who's twenty years old, he grew up in Texas. Well, he he grew up in Texas. How good could he be compared to the guy who played in the West Indies? And so we're gonna use we're gonna pick that guy who was thirty years old, played five Test matches eight years ago from the West Indies because he's got that Test level experience. And wow, man, they, you know it's amazing. And well. You know, it's a chicken versus the egg thing. Well, how is he going to get experience if you don't give him the opportunity to gain experience? Uh, and and again, unless there's an administrative mandate to to put their foot down and say, you know what, two players being equal, we're going to have to start picking that guy who's the 20 year old from Texas, uh, the 20 year old from California, who just will will take that chance and will take that risk, and even if he messes up a few times, and will will show some faith in him because for the long term benefit of the entire cricket infrastructure in the USA, we need players like that coming through and getting exposure and, and getting opportunities because not only will it benefit that player personally, but it'll it'll psychologically, it'll instill belief in every other player who's coming up through the local system that, hey, wow, there's actually evidence on paper, there's concrete evidence that they're actually selecting these guys. I believe if I stick with cricket, there might be a future for me too, and maybe I should give cricket... Uh, as much of a shot as possible instead of just giving up and throwing in the towel and, and pursuing a, an IT career, business career, or, or a scientific career, or, or what have you.
And this uh, has touched on one of my pet peeves, I guess, just administrators in associate countries thinking that because a player has, you know, first class experience or all they played for the West Indies or, you know, all they played under 19s for a full member or whatever, they must be better than the local, you know, the local guys, which I think often isn't true. Bringing it around to, you know, where they might be able to improve this situation, there was talk of some sort of academy system linked to the minor league teams. Um, you know, how, how was that going, you know, before cricket got suspended and, and you know, how was that supposed to fit in? Well, part of it was trying to, I think, I think one of the intentions behind it was addressing a certain standard of they wanted, they wanted players to sign up for these academies or commit to these academies so that uh, when I say they, I mean ACE and, and the investors behind ACE uh, were, were designating certain academies that they want you to sign up for these academies and that'll be your best opportunity to be on, on the um, pathway to the minor league and to get you the best opportunities and they'll put th- their best coaching resources and best, you know, if, if it meant investing in a uh, indoor facility or an outdoor turf wicket facility to say, you, you know, you're practicing at this academy, whatever, with certain coaches. I understand the reasoning for wanting or, or trying to influence players to join these academies because I think their belief is the infrastructure has been so haphazard and so scattered and so chaotic for forever in in junior cricket and cricket broadly that they want they want to set a, a certain standard and they believe all right if if the ace academies are streamlined where we've got certain um, regulations in place where we know if you go to an ace academy you're getting X and X is the standard and X means you're getting five hours of coaching a week or you're getting to practice on an indoor facility or you're getting an ace academy means you're practicing with uh, you're, you're getting the guidance from a, a level three ECB or a level three cricket Australia certified coach. Okay. And going to a non ace academy means we don't know what kind of coaching you're getting. You might getting, you might get a level three coach or you might might get a, a person who doesn't even have an introductory coaching certificate. The problem with that is, now they've assigned. You know, if you want to join one of the one of these academies, the the co- the costs, from what I've seen, are quite quite high. And when I say quite high, I'm I'm talking about thousands and thousands of dollars, either on a monthly basis or or on, a, on an annual basis. And the risk of doing that is you're turning cricket into a pay to play sport, and you are potentially robbing yourself of the the opportunity to cast the net as wide as possible to get the best athletic talent as possible. We've seen that with the national team itself. Prior to the introduction of central contracts with ACE and USA Cricket, in some ways you could argue that USA Cricket, the national team, was turning into a pay-to-play national team because only the players who were in a financially stable situation or who grew up with essentially from families who were well off or well to do with with very good means that was the only way you could play for USA because you know if you take an example of somebody like Tim Roy Allen Tim Roy Allen had to essentially well he didn't have to but he took the decision into his own hands he voluntarily stopped playing for USA because there was no money in it and he needed to work enough hours to to pay enough bills to support his own family and this is something that um one of the stories that's uh, that's discussed in depth in in the book uh, that I wrote inside this lecture room, Tim Roy Allen is a perfect example of that where he was arguably the best player USA had through the the mid 2010s, and he missed 
probably the prime years of his career from the age of essentially 26, 20, 27 up until the age of 30, 31, where he wasn't really playing for USA because um, there was no there was no money. Um, that harmed USA in certain ways at the national team level. They weren't getting the best players available because of that. And if you do that on a developmental basis at junior level, again, going forward, you're going to turn cricket into uh, a sport for the elite instead of a sport for the masses. And again, if they're taking this approach, ace and USA cricket, do you, again, how do you reconcile wanting cricket to be a quote-unquote mainstream sport, a, a sport for the masses, a sport where as many people as playing as possible versus the current uh, structure that they're trying to implement, which is to make it, uh, in, in some ways, a country club. I, I personally, in the past, I have advocated for this. I, I've, I, I will readily admit, I, I do think, in some ways, there needs to be, in some parts of the country, a country club-style approach adopted because you get what you pay for, okay? If you go to the Toronto Cricket Skating and Curling Club up in Toronto, the fees to be part of that club are in the low uh, five-figure range. You're paying ten, fifteen thousand dollars to be a member of the Toronto Cricket Skating and Curling Club. But guess what? You have access to the best cricket facility in Canada, and in a lot of uh, clubs across the country in, in U.S. cricket, you're playing on garbage facilities. You're playing on four or five-inch high grass, non-turf wickets, shared facilities where you're paying maybe $50 or $100 to be a member for for the year for the club. There there needs to be a balance between the two. Um, but I think the fear is if you start that so early at, at the youth age level, you're going to be really, really, really thinning out the talent that's available to, to really um, be part of that pipeline and that pathway to the national team. Well, this um, there's there's a lot going on there, but this touches on a point that I was very interested in discussing, and that's the relationship between ACE and um, the the board at the moment, and the way that ACE have uh, sort of got their tentacles in every aspect of of basically cricket administration in America. It's almost like um, you know, with that that big payout that you USA Cricket got that they've kind of been bought out and you know we've even heard reports of players being directly contracted by ACE rather than uh, USA Cricket and you know the the um, ACE uh, appointees dominating in the the staff and the coaching side of things so I guess what is going on there and do you see that as being something that is going to happen a lot more in the associate world as, as associate boards uh, look for other means of funding and you know where do you think that's going to take international cricket at the associate level i mean it's a great question uh i think a lot of it is I, I, some of it's wait and see i mean if the approach that usa cricket is taking turns into a, a rousing success you could see other boards follow that lead if it turns into a monumental failure i don't think you'll see anybody take that lead well i, I think the uae um and around the the time of Doug Brown's sacking, got involved with a UAE property developer who who basically seems to be exerting a lot of influence as well. So it seems like it's starting to happen elsewhere. And again, it's early days for the UAE. So so again, if you want to combine USA and UAE, and if both of them turn into um, dramatic failures, I don't think you're going to see too many people queuing up in terms of other boards in the associate world to say, ooh, we want to take a page out of the USA and UAE playbook and have commercial investors influencing a lot of the decision-making. A corporate entity who wants to be you know, the, the title sponsor of a team who says, well, I, 
I'm, I'm investing $10 million to $20 million, and, and now I want you to sign player X, and I want you to fire coach Y. That, that, that's not really realistically going to happen in a professional sports franchise because they've got so many alternate means of revenue, and they don't need to account out to anybody like that. In the college sports world, that does happen. If you've got a booster who says, I'm going to invest $25 million or $50 million into a new training complex, and I want to call it the uh, uh, the Della Pena uh, sports complex on the campus of the University of, of Z, that happens in college sports. Uh, you'd have to be naive to say this doesn't happen elsewhere or that, you know, you're seeing, a, uh, oh, my, you know, the shock and horror response, like, how, how dare this happen and how, how could this happen? And this is um, this is unacceptable. It, it happens. OK, USA Cricket, um, they're not in a position where they've got millions and millions and millions of, of sponsors and investors that they can readily just say. Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, again, USA Cricket and Ace share the same headquarters. They're in the, they're in the same office space in Los Altos in California. And it, you know the press release says it used some creative wording when it said the the, the headquarters was relocating to to co-locate and to share resources effectively or whatever the wording was. But um, yeah, you'd have to be naive to, to think that there isn't um, some overlap there in terms of of the influence. It didn't have the desired effect in terms of T20 qualifying. They f- fell on their faces in, in um, Bermuda, but they won three out of four matches in the next two ODI series. So it goes both ways at, at the current point in time, and obviously they had the, the disastrous tour in Nepal, but um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens going forward, in particular with the minor league and, and everything else. Well, that concludes part one of our chat with ESPN Creek Info's Peter Delapena. Look out next week for some more content where we discuss more cricket and his personal story. To keep up with news from Cricket's New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket on our various social networks and make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you are listening to the podcast. For now, from myself, Daniel Beswick, on behalf of the boys, Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the Emerging Cricket world.